ride to Tower Records. It's a real trip. Thousands of CDs are on sale now. Wow. Remember buying CDs? Like physically walking into Sam Goody or Virgin Records to buy a whole ass Cisco album for like $18 when you really just wanted that one song? But then you got to the desktop computer and logged on to this thing called the Internet. And after that, it didn't take long to find out about a new program called Napster. At its peak, nearly 60 million people used the site to swap music files from each other's computers for free. All of a sudden, if you needed that new, new Destiny's Child, you just hit download. In a couple minutes, or days later, you had their entire catalog because sharing is caring. You don't think this is stealing? Not at all. This is Peak 2000s, the show that throws it all the way back to our favorite pop culture moments of the aughts. Today, Napster. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, oh my God, hi. I am your beautiful, amazing, youngest host, Sydney Washington. And I'm here with a legal music downloader, Marie Faustin. Hey girl, you know music is free, right? You were illegally downloading music, were you? Yes, yes. Me and me and everybody else. Everybody. Everybody that like mom would let them connect to the internet and then leave them for several hours. Absolutely. I mean it was illegal. It was, was it? Yes. I, I remember being in college and people were like, yo, if you get caught, if you get caught, you could go to jail. See, and that's why you shouldn't go to college. Because <laughs> when I was downloading my music, I was still in uh, high school. But, I mean, one day I went on the little compact, I mm-hmm. locked on, mm-hmm. and my brother had downloaded a bunch of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, we got music in the house now? And so, yeah, I was just downloading things and listening to the things that he downloaded and putting them on my iPod. Yeah, see, I couldn't really get into the stealing music because my brother was really big on buying music. He always had CDs. I mean, he had, like, that tower thing that you put all the CD, you shove yeah, them in. Yeah, that, like, Jenga stack. Yes, he had tons. Of, he had about five to seven of them in the living room, and then he had cassettes, Mm-mm. and he was always, like, either letting me borrow his music or he would give me blank CDs to burn music onto. But how are you burning music? So you would take the CD that would have all the music. Okay, so you were taking the CD, putting it on the la- on the computer. Yes. Then bur- oh, girl, yeah. I had to cut out the middleman. You just download it for free. Steal it. <laughs> Steal it. So you never paid for music? My entire life, I paid for two CDs. Okay. Tell me about it. Two CDs. Which ones were they? Uh, one was a Mariah Carey. I was going to say that. That's and, crazy. And, okay, so what's the second one? Something random. Yes, that's right, Sydney. It was the Backstreet Boys <laughs> Millennium <laughs> album. You son of a bitch. 
All right, Marie. This is, you know, this is always a good time to reminisce because mm-hmm. it just makes me feel like even though we're not the same age, we were together around the same time doing similar but different things. And it's, I mean, makes my heart literally swell. Literally different things. I was stealing and you were paying. Okay. Yeah. Two different but very similar hearts. <laughs> Men. Keep trying to make it the <laughs> I same. Am. Okay, let's put a pin on that or actually be dead to all of that mm-hmm. and get into our fabulous guests. Justin Richmond is a producer and one of the hosts of the music podcast Broken Record, along with Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin. Justin, welcome to Peak 2000s, man. What's going on? Yo, I'm pumped to be here. I've been trying to get back to the 2000s by any means, so this is great. What's your the thing that you miss most about the early 2000s? I miss no social media. That's my I miss that. True. I miss burning CDs. I miss wow. I miss commercials. I miss not having to stream TV. That's what I miss. You know what I mean? To each his own. Okay. <laughs> we'll put a pin in that. Let's get right started right now. How did Napster start? Like, what's its origin story? It started by two guys, two Shans. So Sean Parker was like this crazy genius computer hacker kid. I think at 16, it was. He was arrested by the FBI for like hacking into multinational corporations. Eventually, he did a little community service for that, I should say. He picked up some trash on a highway. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. <laughs> But at some point in that period, he met Sean Fanning, Mm -hmm. who was another computer hacker. We met over the internet, and we knew each other for like three or four years or something before we ever met in person. And had the idea of being able to sort of share files across computers. I was a freshman at Northeastern University in Boston. One of my roommates was into MP3s. He would skip class and sit home and download music. And he was always complaining about how unreliable the technology was. And that sort of signaled me that there was a potential... Uh, there's a problem that could be solved, and I just looked into it and um, came up with the solution, which ultimately became Napster. And Sean Fanning's uncle and Sean Parker convinced him it could be a business, and that's kind of how Napster got started right there in 1999. Just in time for Y2K. Yeah. If you weren't scared of the Y2K bug, you could get any kind of bug you wanted off of Napster. I mean, it was a bug's life on Napster. <laughs> yeah. <That's> right. <laughs> okay, so they create... Napster in the 9-9. How much music were you downloading at that time? Crazy amounts. Crazy amounts. And like my parents, like, you know, I was slowing down the dial-up. I was slowing it right. way <laughs> down, downloading things like overnight, you know, yeah. leave, before I leave for school. Yes. A bunch of things to download, leave it going all day, running up the electricity bill, getting yelled at. It was crazy. Because, you know, like I was younger at the time. I remember trying to buy the Chronic 2001. No. Yeah, Are I, I tried serious? to buy it legally. Right. And I remember my parents seeing it and being like, they ain't going to know. They ain't going to know. But they saw it. They threw it out. So I was like, man. They so threw it away? They threw it out. So you bought it. You brought it in the house. And they were like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They threw it out. As soon as Napster hit, it was like, it was great. I was like, as soon as my friend turned me on to it, I was like, I downloaded that. Then I went back. I went back and got the NWA discography. I mean, I got like, I just went back. I started discovering like everything. So yeah, I was downloading like crazy. What's the actual process of downloading these songs? Or what do you remember most about it? I just remember it was slow. Everything was slow back then, but that was slow, man. And I feel like maybe there was DSL by that point, which was like the faster internet than dial-up, but we were still on dial-up. So it was like, you know, it would take a couple of hours to get a song. Some of them will go fast. Some of them you'd be like, oh. Oh. And then you would listen to it and you're like, oh, this is not the thing that I thought it was going to be. It's not what you thought it was. And then it'd be like a minute and 15 of whatever you thought it wasn't. You know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
Yeah. Or sometimes it would be fuzzy or they would be like the AOL door sound or like just like bad, bad, bad. And then in the middle of the process, you have all these pop-up ads. It was a fun thing to do, but also it was tedious. It was tedious, but it was definitely more... I mean, you know, in, in hindsight, it was like completely illegal, but it was mm-hmm. way easier than <laughs> yeah. going and spending like 20 bucks on a CD. You know, I was taking the bus down to warehouse. There was a whole process. And it's like, well, I could do that or I could get online right before I go to school, you know, download like All Eyes on Me and then get home. Right. And it's like the Skilo album. But you know, <laughs> that's fine. was it worth it? Yeah. I probably ruined like three to four computers, I'm sure, you know, but it was 100%. I didn't pay for them. It was 100% worth it, you know, 100%. Did the actual process make you appreciate music more? I don't know. I guess in hindsight, if I'm thinking about it, it did make me a bigger music fan. Like I just sampled a lot more things. It definitely sped up my discovery. We were on our laptops or on computers for hours just looking up music because the door was so open to, oh, I could look up any artist people that you knew about and didn't know about, you had this access to. I remember that's how I discovered Project Pat. Chicken, chicken, chicken It was like mind-blowing. I'm like, what is this music? You know what I mean? It was just like grimy beats, way slowed. And it's like, you know, I'm in LA. That wasn't the music I was hearing. So but all of a sudden I was like, wow, it, was like a, it just blew my mind about what was out there music-wise regionally, you know, that there's this whole other sounds in other parts of the country. Yeah. Well, anytime I went to somebody's house and I sat at their computer, I would look at what they had downloaded. And sometimes I would download stuff to their to their computers because it was like, well, this is what I want to hear right now. So I was leaving viruses in multiple people's homes, but also like discovering music through their library. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Lars Ulrich from Metallica was speaking out against Napster. Yeah. What was his main argument? Back in the day, I remember, I mean, you guys probably remember too, when this was happening, everyone was saying that Metallica was just greedy. And so the, the perception was Metallica was just pissed that they were losing out on money. When I went back and looked at the argument, the argument, I mean, was a, it was a right argument. He just wanted to have the ability to say yes or no to having their music on there. I did not, was not asked if I wanted to be part of Napster. I was not asked if Napster could throw our music into their system. That choice was taken away from me. You didn't ask, okay? It's not just about the money. It's like, what about my permission? My music, my choice, mm-hmm. right? Which, I, you know, I could sympathize with that, but... He did come off kind of like a jerk about it. If we are going to sell our music on the internet in whatever way we so choose, we cannot do that if the guy next door is giving it away for free. I guess to his credit, he said he misunderstood the whole thing. And I kind of get it. Metallica was so big. It was like this new technology. And I'm like, wait, what is that? Like, wait a second. Like all their music's on. They just didn't get it. You know, like they're on tour. The manager's hitting them like, mm-hmm. hey, like this thing you recorded that's in your vault is actually like all over the Internet and all over radio because people download it off the Internet and your whole back catalog is there. And they just like, they just couldn't get it. They weren't really thinking like, oh, yeah, this is things changing. And he said like, you know, in hindsight, he could have handled that better. It's definitely true. Lars was just the unfortunate face of the whole thing. I mean, he was the one who was, I guess, most vocal about it and was okay with it. But, I mean, I'm sure everyone else in the background was like, yo, get my music off of there. Lars didn't understand that speaking out was uncool. Like, even if people agreed with what he was saying, they didn't want to be publicly known for, oh, we are against Napster. Right. They did not. Because it felt like being against fans. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, that's yes. what it was doing. It felt like being like, screw you, don't get my music free. Like, pay 25 bucks for it. But what was other musicians saying? Were they on board with him? The labels certainly were with him. A bunch of labels sued Napster through the RIAA. I think A&M was one of the biggest of the labels. But, I mean, Universal was on there as well, but I think they kind of led the lawsuit. 
Mm-hmm. Dr. Dre ended up suing him as well, probably because people like me were downloading the 2001. But, you know, there were other artists that were with it. In the summer of 2000, you could download Limp Bizkit's music on Napster and then go see Limp Bizkit on tour for free because the tour was sponsored by Napster. Damn. Oh. Okay. And Fred Durst, I hate to say I agree with him, but Fred Durst's opinion was that this is good for music discovery. Fans find the music. His other thing was that people want to listen to music on the computer, which in hindsight, I think is true. More than that, we wanted to like steal music. We just wanted to listen to music conveniently. Yeah. Well, Chuck D from Public Enemy was one of the people defending Napster. The music business has been one in control of the artist's destiny, throwing them in, throwing them out. And right now, this war goes beyond their heads. This is like the power goes back to the people because the industry has, over the last 15, 16 years, has been accountant and lawyer driven, and it hasn't been about the artistry. First of all, Chuck D would be the one to understand this. Chuck D is like, <laughs> yo, he's, he's the man. I mean, the music industry has been screwing people over forever. Yeah. Metallica got big in like the late 80s when bands were still making crazy money. You know, it was bloated. It'd be a band that had just got signed that had like a really good single. The single would do well, so the, the label would have them record an album real quick, but the album wouldn't be quality, and then you'd sell it for 20 bucks. So then when Napster comes along, they, they get really pissed. Bands that made a lot of money got mad, and of course the labels who were raking in dough got mad. Mm-hmm. But like small artists and artists like Chuck D, who always relied on like a hardcore base of fans to survive, they understood that this was good for fan bases. When you think about it, also stupid for the whole industry to go after like an 18-year-old. I think just optically especially with a, a band like Metallica, although I think Lars was right, they were like a super, you know, they'd made their money. They made a ton of money. They were set. So the optics were real bad. I mean, I remember that there were rumors that the FBI was like monitoring all of the computers and that if you downloaded music, they can find you and fine you and then arrest you. Was that true? Do you know anybody who got arrested? Yeah. I don't know anyone that got arrested, thankfully. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was always worried about that, man. I was all, I always thought, like, oh, man, it's going to be me, you know? But now the, the truth is, they didn't really go after, like, people that were just downloading like, songs here and there. They're mostly going after, after the companies that were facilitating peer-to-peer file sharing. And occasionally, they went after, like, a user or two. Metallica, though, as part of that lawsuit, did turn over, like, 60,000 pages of usernames of people who were trading their music. So... They did dime on people. Lars is the cops. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, but luckily, nobody here was was downloading any Metallica tracks. When did Napster get shut down? And can you tell me a little bit about the copyright case? Yeah, Napster got shut down like super quick. They launch officially in fall of 99. By summer of 99, there's the lawsuits by the RIAA and Metallica are, are already filed. And by August of 2001, it's all over for them. A federal court ruled Monday Napster must stop allowing music fans to swap copyrighted material. Monday, the Recording Industry Association of America won the latest round in its battle against Napster. It's time for Napster to stand down and build their business the old-fashioned way. They must seek permission first. Meanwhile, Napster fans are going to keep downloading until the very end. Those cases are settled. You know, they have to liquidate their assets. And and yeah, it's a wrap for them. Were you surprised that Napster lost the case when it happened? Nah. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. The music industry is deep, man. You don't want to play with those lawyers. And, you know, there were just some 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids going up against a whole industry. It's not surprising. The other sites, LimeWire and Kazaa, were they basically the same? 100% the same. 
Except I, I feel like they were probably even worse in terms of like the viruses you would get. And, like, they just, were. Like, man, and like, the mislabeling of music. So the story we always hear about Napster is that these two boys single-handedly took down the music industry. But is that true? Changed it. They changed it. They yeah, changed they it. They changed okay. it forever. But looking back at everything, do you think we should have been more thoughtful about downloading music for free? Are we the bad guys? Do you agree with Lars? I mean, we were wrong and we were right. Like, again, like, we were stealing people's copyright. Yes. But it's not right, but it's okay. <laughs> it, it was definitely okay. Yeah. That's it right there. It's not right, but it's okay. I'm going to make it anyway. Like, the music industry is going to make it. So, we, yes, we were wrong, but they just needed to adapt. We were right. Like, things needed to change. Yeah. And no matter what, the music industry is going to eat. Yep. Okay. Now it's time for my favorite part of the pod. We got this segment called Yay or Yuck. We're going to give you some topics, and you're going to give us a yay if it still holds up, or a yuck if we should leave it in the early 2000s. So, first up, we got the average cost of a CD in the year 2000, $18.50. Average cost of a single in 2000 was $5.87. Mm. Yay or yuck? Yuck. That's 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 disturbing. <laughs> it's just too much. I pay 10 bucks for Spotify. Right. <laughs> Go check out Spotify. They need our plug. <laughs> you heard it here first. Okay. Next thing. Risking getting thousands of viruses that will eventually destroy your computer just to download the thong song. Yay or yuck? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd risk it off with a thong song all over again. 100%. Solid song, clear bop from start to finish. From the beginning. From the beginning. And then, oh, when he breaks it down. Yeah! (laughs) Yo, it is worth it. It's totally. You know what? Yeah. If we could turn back the hands of time, I would do it again yeah. and again and again and again. That was beautiful. I yeah. Honestly, you hit the note beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next thing we got, the time Sean Fanning shows up to the VMA Awards in a Metallica t-shirt just to troll Lars Ulrich, who was in the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, creative Napster, Sean Fanning. Nice shirt. Nice shirt. You like it? You like it? Actually, a friend of mine shared it with me. I love it. Yay. I miss the drama of those MTV uh, award shows back in the day, man. That was incredible. So he wore a Metallica shirt and he came out to a Metallica song. Brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) And then he said, actually, a friend of mine shared it. I mean... Top tier content. Who was that introducing Sean Fanning? Carson Daly. Carson Daly? Remember him? What a moment. What a moment. Legend. Oh, my God. Okay. Yay or yuck? Sean Fanning's reason for naming the program Namster. He said his friends in high school used to call him Nappy because of his afro. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, that's what he said. Yo, the amount of white people that come up to me in a day and be like, yo, you know, my hair was just like yours back. And then I'm like, I'm looking at my what Yo. Justin, they <laughs> love saying that. Okay, so you don't know what Justin looks like. We're going to let you know. It looks like uh, Maxwell his hair, from the beginning. His hair texture is... 
the first album. Yeah. Oh man, thank you. My wife hates my hair texture right now, so I'm, I'm gonna what? tell her. I'm gonna play this back for her. Yeah. But what is her hair doing? Yeah. Oh, man, not nothing like my hair. I'll tell you that, man. It's very moisturized. I love the curl pattern. Yeah. It's beautiful, Maxwell. That's right. Okay, so that's a yuck on Sean Fanning's afro. We yes. actually Googled Sean Fanning with an afro and could not find it. So <laughs> there is no proof. He's wrong. Okay, and lastly, Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker in the movie The Social Network. I brought down the record companies with Napster in case they'll suffer for their sins oh, too. You, sorry, you, you, didn't, you didn't bring down the record companies. They won. In court. Yeah. You want to buy a Tower Records, Eduardo? This complicated because I, lo- I love JT, man. I know like it's not kosher to love JT anymore, but I, I love JT. I don't care. I don't like that movie, though. <laughs> so it's like it's, it's, it's somewhere in between for me. So we are going to yuck the movie. Yay for Justin as Sean Parker. And, and Justin Timberlake had the fro that Sean Fanning said he had. Yes, right? yes. That's the only white man I've ever seen with hair like that. That's it. Okay. Justin he Timberlake. He had a perm. It's called a perm. It's a perm. Yeah, he had, That's what he that had was. a perm. He, a perm. He, wanted the, the, he wanted his braids to last longer, so they inked it up for <laughs> 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 All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Peak 2000s. This episode of Peak 2000s was not brought to you by Zoom. Are you sick of your boring white iPod always working? Are you ready for an MP3 player that really slaps? Kind of? You need the Microsoft Zoom. Zoom lets you listen to music from the Zoom marketplace and send songs to your friends if they have a Zoom, which, good luck. Zoom. It looks and behaves like an iPod, but it's not quite an iPod. That's good enough, right? Please, just buy it. Okay, boom shakalaka, boom. In this episode, we have Justin Richmond. He's the co-host of the Broken Record podcast from Pushkin Industries. His show is a behind-the-mic look at some of the most groundbreaking musicians of our time. And Justin makes it alongside super producer Rick Rubin. The show has some amazing interviews with legendary music folks like Andre 3000. Okay, hey, Andre. Alicia Keys. Okay, Alicia, see you on the boat. And Bruce Springsteen. Bruce, I'll call you later. (laughs) You can listen to Broken Record wherever you get podcasts and stay tuned until the end of this episode for a special clip featuring the Red Hot Chili Peppers sharing the story of how they first met. Mm, I love friendship. Okay, y'all, get into it. Listen to it now. Bye. Okay, babes, let's do this. What the hell happened to the Shans? Sean Parker and Sean Fanning, where the hell they at? What are they doing? They're both doing fine. I mean, one's doing great, the other's doing fine. Sean Parker ended up basically being president of Facebook within its first year of being a thing. And, you know, clearly made like who knows how many hundreds of millions off of that. And has gone on to found like a bunch of other companies in the meantime. Sean Fanning, again, has just been like a serial entrepreneur, taking a bunch of venture capital money, starting up businesses. You know, Sean Parker went on to become an early investor in Spotify. And he talked about that in 2010. What I'm trying to do with Spotify is, is, uh, is finish what I started with Napster. The distribution model for music remains broken. I've dedicated the rest of my career to trying to fix what I broke. Mm, mm. Do we need to slide in Sean Parker's DMs? Mm. Hit him with some snowflake emojis? You flirt by sending snowflake emojis to (laughs) You see, I'm old. I'm out out of touch. I'm so sorry. We're talking about Nassar. I'm more concerned about, like, 
that he basically made Facebook a thing. You know what I'm saying? Napster tried to bring down the music business. Face, Facebook's brought down democracy, man. I mean, like, that's that's terrible. What's, 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 right. what's worse? What's worse, you know? Talking about, I'm trying to fix what we broke. Yeah, you breaking the world, man. Yeah, come on. So you're, so you're saying you're stand for Justin Timberlake, but a no on Facebook? I'm a, okay, hold up. <laughs> I'm yes on Justin. Okay. I'm no on the social network. Um, yes. No on social media. Um, yes on Napster. So I, I, it's convoluted. I don't, I don't know. So obviously no one is downloading music anymore. It's all streaming. Did Napster lead us to where we are now? Yeah, because, I mean, it was the first form of music distribution that was online that blew up. And it made labels have to quickly scramble to figure out, like, how are we going to exist in this new market or in this new paradigm, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, we have to exist online somehow. iTunes comes along eventually. They start realizing they could sell downloads. Singles go from, like, what were we saying? Like, $5 in 2000 to, like, yeah. 99 cents. So, like, that really saved their ass. And there was still something cumbersome about the downloads. And the idea of streaming music for a subscription had always sort of been in the background. Napster changed everything. It's like, we want music on our computers. That's the legacy of Napster, and that's what we have now. Do you think that the musicians really were hurt or got hurt by the internet? Or are they going to be screwed no matter what? Artists have always been screwed no matter what. There's so many pitfalls to the music business and being a musician, yeah. you know. I don't think the internet or Napster or any of that stopped any artist from being, like, wanting to make music. I highly doubt it. You know what I mean? I mean, there's been raw deals since, you know, the days of, like, Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And so overall, I mean, so many artists are discovered through social media instead of the labels. So I think Chuck D was kind of right. Yeah, Chuck D was right. In the sense that, like, Napster gave power back to the people, and now artists kind of are in control of their own destiny through streaming and social media. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's like they have to treat their career or their artistry like a small business now, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, now they have the ability, if they want to sort of be their own, to be their own manager, to be their own label, to be their own distributor, all the things, right? And so... It's more complicated in a way, but it definitely gives them more control. Mm -hmm. Justin, this has been such an amazing time and such a treat. I'm sure the people want to know where the hell they can catch you on the social meds. Yeah. Can you give us your handles and where else we can listen to you? You can catch me on the Broken Record podcast with Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin. We drop every Tuesday. You can catch me on Twitter at It's Jay Richmond. I'm on Instagram. You can find me wherever. I'm around. Find me. If you care, <laughs> you, if you care really, enough, you'll find me. You know what I'm you saying? You really so. don't care about the socials yeah. at all. Oh, I man. love that. I love that for yeah. you. He's yeah. underground. I love yeah. Justin Richmond. <laughs> Thank you that. so much for being on Peak 2000s. Please stay well. Thanks, y'all. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show and probably yours too, The Swag Report, where we break down the latest trends. Marie... I heard you're at a conference in San Francisco, okay, mm -hmm. where Steve Jobs is about to announce a new program called iTunes? Yeah, girl. They're talking about CDs going away, and they introduced this new thing called an iPod. What? Okay. Please you explain. put the music on the iPod. Is it like a CD player? It's sexier than a CD player. Okay. You can run with it. You can throw it in the air. It never skips. Wow. So there's no more CDs, friend. But I love CDs. Oh. Why are they doing such well, a thing? Well, there's a picture of the album on the iPod. I just got a new disc man as well. 
Do I throw those things away? Anti-shock? You know I ain't got money for that. It's full of shock? Mm-hmm. Yeah, girl, you gotta let that go. All right, I guess maybe you're right. Because, you know, the thing with a CD player, you mm-hmm. can't just put it in your pocket. No, you have to, like, put that strap around your hand. Yeah. It is kind of heavy and mm-hmm. bulky. Mm-hmm. And you can't turn it on its side. You know, Steve Jobs might be on to something. <laughs> Thanks so much, Marie. We're back in the studs where there's no iPods or Apples and everything here is uh, breaking down. <laughs> Peak 2000s is a Spotify original production in partnership with the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sydney Washington, and you can follow me at JustSydSYDNYC. You can follow Marie Faustin at Miss Reezy, that's M-S-R-E-E-Z-Y. We are produced by the Vox Media Podcast Network and Spotify. For Vox Media, our producer is Gina Pollock. Our executive producers are Zach Mack and Nashat Kura. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our theme music is by Brandon McFarlane. And for Spotify, our producers are Baron Farmer and Candice Manriquez-Ren. Executive producer is Gina Delvac. Special thanks to Evan Tarantino, Teal Kratke, Amanda Long, Yasmin Afifi, and Leslie Guan. Next time on Peak 2000s. Anthony, what's your, what's your meeting John story? <laughs> It's kind of gruesome. It's gnarly. It's not a... Um... So the Red Hot Chili Peppers had a show in Pasadena? Yep, Perkins Palace. At Perkins Palace, which was a storied venue. Saw a lot of great shows there, including King Crimson, where Flea passed out. But we had a show there, and I was going through a, a very nebulous period of my life where I was doing a lot of um, narcotics and sometimes I would show up late to shows or sometimes I would miss the occasional show because I was just lost in a haze. On this particular show, I was running late because I was downtown Los Angeles buying narcotics. And I showed up. It was it was dark out and there was a park in front of Perkins Palace. And I was going to go fix somewhere in this park to kind of take the sick edge off myself And I ran into these two beautiful, excited, vibrant, stoked-for-the-show fans, or at least, you know, from my point of view. And uh, one was John, and was it Bill? No, this was a guy named Matt, the guy, yeah. Matt. So John and and Matt approached me, and they were like, oh, my God, we're here for the show. We can't wait. You know, what songs are you going to play? This kind of thing. And I was like, oh, so nice to see you. Yeah, I'm just going to be in there in a minute. I'll see you guys inside. You actually didn't brush us off. You actually like, like, like we, like I think that guy Matt asked, like, "Hey, Anthony, what are you doing?" You know, and 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 you're like, oh, "I'm just taking a contemplative walk." <laughs> <laughs> a little too contemplative, to be honest. So we had our interaction, and and they did make a a large impression on me. I was I was touched by the enthusiasm and and just the the beautiful aura of these people that were so into the show that I felt honestly a little bit demoralized about because I was going through this weird time and I, and I knew I would not be at my best, (laughs) (laughs) which mattered to me a lot, Yeah, but I had this, this addiction thing going on and 
So we parted ways, and I went and found a staircase, and I sat down, and I literally took care of my business on the staircase just to be well enough to go and play. And as I looked up afterwards, I realized I was on the, the stairs of the Pasadena Police Department. <laughs> that That's the, the location I had chosen to do my dirty work. And um, I, was, I was foggy. Then I went inside, went backstage, prepared, full of day-glow colors and black light and, you know, madness and a girlfriend. And my band was kind of mad at me. And, and uh, we did the best we could, but it was subpar in, from my standpoint. I was not on fire. But that's the first time I met John. What was the second, John? Well, there's this funny thing. In about 1986, I think it was, my stepdad came home one day and told me a story that he was driving on the freeway and the cars were all stopped. It was a lot of traffic. And he was eating a banana. And he threw the banana peel out the window. And some guy jumps out of his car, picks up the banana peel, and stuffs it back through the window at him and makes some intense remark about about littering and makes a remark about the banana and him and, and gets back <laughs> in his car. Then I'm, I'm driving in a car with Anthony about two years later. And Anthony tells me the same story. Only he's the guy who gets out of the car and picks the banana peel up and stuffs it back through the window. Amazing. Crazy. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was my MO, you know, a, a bit self-righteous. And, and uh, on La Brea one time, way earlier, I saw somebody throw a bag of McDonald's out their window and fries and paper and cups went flying all over. And I did the same thing. I collected it all up and stuffed it back in their car. And they ended up chasing me north on La Brea, throwing hamburgers like weapons. And, and I remember like dodging and ducking and I don't know. When I was a kid, I also did the same thing. I saw young people throwing their candy wrappers into bushes. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's a bush. You cannot harm the bush. So then there was this period of time where Hillel Slovak had died. Jack Irons had quit the band and Flea and I... As, as was our kind of energetic momentum. We're like, we, you know, we love these people, but we must continue playing music together. And it's hard to find the right people to play music with. You know, it's the chemistry. It doesn't matter. They could be the most brilliant people on earth, but you have to find that weird, soulful, guttural connection. And, and we had tried playing with Blackbird McKnight as a guitarist and, uh, D.H. Pellegro as a as a drummer and and then Flea had mentioned that there was this sort of prodigious young person from the valley who was supposed to be a, a real sensation of of guitar playing and I was intrigued and then Bob Forrest said hey I'm going to get this this young guy John Frusciante to join Thelonious Monster and all these kind of bells and whistles were going off in my head and. I had a conversation with Flea, and he's like, "Yeah, this I I jammed with this this young person, and he was he was on point." So then I went and saw John audition for Thelonious Monster in a garage on Fountain, and saw him play. And I was like, "I I just I have to intervene here. I I can't let this happen. He's <laughs> he's too perfect for what we are doing." And I was you know I was probably a selfish punk at that phase of my life, and. And I remember having some conversation with John in the driveway, like, 
that was a great audition, but you know, would you consider maybe joining our band instead of this band? That's that's my hazy memory. John probably has a, a clearer picture. 